No espresso. Live from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter Espresso, where we do all we can to worship God in. Yeah, <laughs> we. All we can to worship God in spirit and in truth. I'm Sean McCraney, your host. Let's have a prayer. Father, we uh, seek you and love you. We thank you for your son and, um, and, and seek to uh, follow him in every way. Send your spirit to be with us, Lord, and uh, help those who are seeking truth. Open their eyes, open their ears, open their hearts, and uh, let us move forward with the things we're talking about. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do I mean by espresso? I used to have trouble fitting everything that uh, we had for a given hour. Uh, but as we've stopped going after the Mormons and have tried to focus more on kind of deconstructing uh, Christian culture, uh, the on-air interaction has waned. Plus, when we left live television here in the state, uh, and this is expected, when there's a volatile subject at hand, there's plenty of fodder for discussion, but when the topics are more for your consideration, they're just thoughts to consider and we're trying to talk, uh, there's going to be a shift in dynamism in the show. And, and uh, so I sort of see Heart of the Matter today as one-third less long, uh, and, but hopefully one-third more to the point. So instead of a 16-ounce coffee, HOTM has become more like a hopefully a shot of espresso. We'll probably whittle it down more and more as time goes on. Everything hopefully will be more integrated, a bit faster and more focused. Received an email from a longtime viewer, Curtis. He was talking about my comment that never in the New Testament do they talk about the word priest in terms of priest like they had in the Aaronic, uh, uh, the, the priesthood of Aaron in the Old Testament. And uh, he provided, started off providing a scripture 1 Peter 2, 5, it says, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ. And then he says, Sean, I am a priest. You are a priest. The Holy Spirit lives within us. We are a church. We have direct daily communications, connections with God. The old covenant priesthood was weak and useless. It's never made anything perfect. Now we have a better hope, Hebrews 7, 18. Jesus, our high priest, lives forever to intercede with God on our behalf, Hebrews 7.25. Now, Sean, we can boldly enter into heaven's most holy place because of the blood of the cross, Hebrews 10. Isn't that, isn't being a priest a wonderful thing? And Curtis makes a fantastic point, which I failed to mention in making my point about the Aaronic priesthood uh, not being in the New Testament in the sense of believers being priests. Uh, we are, true, by faith, all priests, men and women. We are priests. We are in a priesthood. And um, this, there's a universal priesthood of believers, and, and we are priests in it, and we praise God. And I failed to, failed to articulate that. Grateful for brothers and sisters like Curtis who write and take the time to shine a light on something that's been overlooked or missed. And uh, so with that, how about we take a minute and talk about the concept, if I had kids today. Last week, we learned how the Trilateral Commission, which was founded by David Rockefeller in 1973, stated in their report that was called The Crisis in Democracy, that part of the increasing democratization, which they were against, 
uh, that was going on then is due to, quote, failure on the part of the schools, the universities, the churches, which they reported are the institutions responsible for the indoctrination of the young. And Chomsky points out that's their phrase they used in this report by the Trilateral Commission, not his, the indoctrination of the young. And I want to talk about that phrase. Uh, Proverbs 6, we read some words, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Uh, Christians, in fact, anybody, any faith that seems to orbit around Jesus in any way, and that includes the Mormons or the Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists or Catholics or Baptists or everybody, it seems like the parents love and pastors love, love, love to read that passage and use that passage, and they take it literally and they almost always apply it to the idea that children need to be religiously uh, indoctrinated. And without question, the passage is true. Uh, when it comes to principles relative to this world, I think it's true. Uh, when you look both ways before you step in a, uh, out in the street, uh, train up a child the way he should go and he won't depart from it. So teach him young these principles. And when our training comes with love. If we're training children in love and we're training them with these principles from a young age, uh, if you do it the way that they should go when they go old, grow old, they won't depart from it. But you show me who, someone who trains up a child the way they should go in anger or with manipulation or with untruths, and I guarantee a rebellion later on in life. And so let's talk about this passage relative to raising up children in the faith today in this dispensation of grace. Under the law, remember that passage is in the Old Testament. And under the law, I can't think of words that were more important to parents raising up children uh, because the nation of Israel was seen as a whole. They, weren't, they were not individuals. When one person sinned, the whole tribe got in trouble. And so they were a whole. And so... Very important for that culture and that community to have that indoctrination in place. And in summary, that passage is an approval of religious indoctrination because it is in the Bible. Most parents believe today that's how you should raise children and uh, indoctrinate them. Uh, and I really think that's how most very religious parents would see that. But perhaps they forget that the, the proverb was given under the dispensation of people living under the law and not in the age of grace. And remember what Paul says about the law. It kills. So, yes, it is in the Bible, but is it as applicable to raising children today as, as Christians as it was to them raising up children in the nation of Israel? Indoctrination at its root simply means to teach. So, in its original definition, that is not sinister by any means. Parents are supposed to. We, that's what we do is we teach and train our children. However, as words tend to do, indoctrination has come to mean, in a very broad and general sense, something not good today. It means brainwashing and the process to get a person to accept things uncritically and never questioning them. You know, And many people will take that passage, train up a child the way he's going, and when he's only one part from it, and they say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give them this way to see and think, and that is what it means, and that's my duty as a parent, as a Christian parent. When people are living by the law and must conform or be cast out, that, those passages, that passage makes sense. 
But Jesus came and he introduced a new covenant, a new testament, a covenant of grace. And if I had kids today, I, of course, agree with the passage from Proverbs when it comes to doing their homework and the rules of the road and social decorum. Train up a child the way they should go and they won't depart from it when they're older. But when it comes to teaching them about the faith and the relationship with God through, through Christ, I strongly suggest that indoctrination in our day and age should end. I strongly believe that indoctrination of our kids should end. Um, there's too much information out there for them now uh, to access that is going to confront indoctrination that we used to give our kids. And it's available to our children. And for us to believe that we can use propaganda and indoctrinational methods to keep them in line is just foolish. In fact, in our day, the very word indoctrination is something we recoil from. Why? Because good parents, and most people want to be good parents, they want their children to be thinkers, and they want them to have a quest, and they want them to be free and wonder and be curious and to investigate and to challenge things. Good parents want that. And, and, and to give them as much democracy as possible to kind of choose for themselves, never forgetting the importance of discipline and direction and, and love along the way. In my opinion, indoctrinating kids is lazy. I think indoctrinating kids is fearful. And I think it's a cheap way to parent. I think it's the easy way to parent, to throw them a set of rules and say, this is how it is. And you, know, you just got to believe it. And even if you do it with love, it's going to be challenged later on. So if I had kids today, I would do all I could to run from the practices of religious indoctrination. But I would instead present everything in terms of principles and concepts, opinions, all the while making really clear my devotion, my allegiance to God and Jesus and his word. So I would never impose it upon them, but I would say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. He's my savior, you know, and this is why, but never indoctrinate them. I've said it before and I'll repeat it. Uh, I can look around this, I can look around a 50 mile radius and pull out 10 esteemed Christian families who have indoctrinated their kids. And those kids, when they have grown up, have left the faith. S several have become Mormon from Christian families where the parents were indoctrinating their kids. And uh, without exception, I find an inverse relationship present. And that is the more indoctrination and dogma a child is fed when they're young in the faith of, of Christ, the more those kids will walk from the faith. And just, I mean, my experience is limited, but from I've seen dozens of cases where dogmatic, doctrinal, do, indoctrinating parents have kids who leave the faith. And conversely, it remains true, the less dogmatic, the less indoctrinating the parents, the higher the percentage, the children I see winding up choosing Jesus receiving what he is giving them and following uh, him freely and in love. So give it some thought. Conversion is in the hands of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is kind and patient and long-suffering, 
And when it is present in our sharing Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit, it would be absent of what constitutes indoctrination. Think about it. Indoctrination often includes didactic musts, you must, uh, fear, endless repetitions, punishment, uh, ostracization, which is a word I really have trouble saying, demands, controls, all sorts of things that are antithetical to genuine love. And so if I had kids today, I'd trade all forms of indoctrination for every opportunity to love and share Jesus in love. It's really interesting, we'll wrap it up with this, that God's only begotten son, from what we can tell, was not a parent. He, was, he, didn't, he didn't have children. And I think this is more symbolic and important than we might imagine. And I'm not going to go into why I think it is. I'll just leave that up to you to think about why you think Jesus wasn't a parent. And what would be that? Really give it some thought. And with that, how about a moment from the Word? And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts saying, come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. If for some reason you want to call in tonight, 801-590-8413, 801-590-8413. When I'm done with this, if there's no calls, we're out of here. From the Word, on December 25th of 2016, we delivered, I think, one of the most important messages of the ministry, and we called it an illustration of the Christ. And we uh, set it forth as what I believe is the biblical uh, assessment of the person of Christ Jesus from the Bible. And in that teaching, there's a number of principles about Christ and the one true God. And, and if you're interested and you have the inclination and time, you can go to www.campuschurch.tv and look at the February 25th, I mean, December 25th Christmas uh, sermon. I'm not going to rehearse the contents here, but I am going to do something. I'm going to read Hebrews and I'm going to just read from chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. There's a thing called the Amplified Bible, and what the Amplified Bible does is it will say God, and then it gives in parentheses almost every word you can think of for God, and then every word has an amplification. That's what the Amplified Bible does. And so I'm going to give you the Amplified, which is really me adding concepts I think are biblical to what Hebrews uh, 1, 1 through 9 says. And this is in harmony with helping people understand better, I think, what the scripture says about Jesus. You ready? God, Hebrews 1, the only one and true and living God, God, at sundry times and in diverse manners, over the course of biblical history at different times and in different places and in different ways, in the, as recorded in the Old Testament, spoke in times past. He did what we are going to read about in the past. This is not something he is going to do in the future. It's something that he did in the past spoke in times past unto the fathers, the Jewish fathers, the forefathers of the faith, by the prophets. God in times past spoken to the fathers by the prophets. People who received inspiration from God uh, and spoke on his behalf. Summary, God used to talk to us by and through prophets, right? Verse two, has in these last days, last days, you notice that? The writer is calling the days in which he was writing these last days. 
Interesting, because more years have passed since the writer of Hebrews wrote that to today than had, had occurred uh, in history before that. And he calls them in these last days, right? Has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. So this is his only begotten son, a son made of a woman, a son who was a man and a man the only man ever to have God as his literal, actual father. Has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he, the only true and living God, has appointed heir of all things. The only true and living God took his only human son, Jesus, and made him heir of everything. That's what he says here, right? And has appointed him heir of all things, by whom he also made the world's. The writer of Hebrews adds, he not only made him an heir of all things, it was by him, this son, that he also made the worlds. How are we to understand that? I believe that God spoke the worlds into existence and his word, once it was spoken, went and was done and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. So by his son, the word made flesh, he created the world. Still with me? Verse 3. Who, speaking of his son now, we get, a, we get a description of him. Who, being the brightness of his glory, the brightness of God's glory, and the express image of God's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty. Of the majesty, what is that? That is God, his father. On high, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty. Still speaking of Jesus, verse 4 says, being made. What? It says, being made. This, yes, this is talking about the man Jesus, not the word thriving inside of him, but the man uh, where the word dwelled inside, being made. Okay? Being made so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance, because he is God's only human son, obtained a more excellent name than the angels. Verse 5, For unto which of the angels said God at any time, when has God ever said to an angel, Thou art my son, this day I have begotten thee? He never has. And again, again, when has God ever said to an angel, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son? God has never said that to an angel, or to any other human being, actually. In verse 6, and again, or as another example, when did God ever bring the first begotten into the world and say, let all the angels of God worship him? And the angels did God ever say, and of the angels did God ever say, verse 7, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? Verse 8, but unto the Son, the one true living God said, again, God said this to Jesus, but unto the Son, he, God, said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, even Jesus' God, it says, that's what it says, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness from uh, gladness above thy fellows. Who are his fellows? Me and you. And, and so I just wanted to throw that out there. I read through Hebrews 1 and I saw it the other day and I thought, 
That's an important thing to read relative to Christ Jesus, uh, the Word made flesh, God with us, and the man. And with that, let's continue talking about Chomsky. This is Chopping at the Root, part seven. All right? This is going to be, it's getting interesting. Stay with me. Don't lose it yet. All right? We're taking Chomsky's ideas about big business, about corporations, about big government and, and mass media, and we're taking those principles and assigning them and seeing if they apply to brick-and-mortar religion today. All right? Now, so far, Chomsky has maintained that big government corporations and multimedia conglomerates have sought to reduce democracy so that the few masters of humanity, the few masters of humanity can manipulate and control the masses. Tonight, he's going to take us a step further and deeper, and we, in turn, are going to try to apply these deeper steps to the historic brick-and-mortar church. As time has worn on, Chomsky notes that the masters of humanity have had to change their approaches to achieve their goal of possessing more wealth, more power, and more control over the masses. And he summarizes his third principle uh, of their need to occasionally redesign the economy. This is what he says. In this process, those few always have to kind of redesign the economy. He says, since the 1970s, there has been a concerted effort on the masters of mankind to shift the economy in two crucial respects. Now, I'm only going to cover one of these crucial respects because the other one doesn't apply to the brick and mortar church. Uh, and Chomsky says, this first crucial respect is, quote, to increase the role of financial institutions, banks, investment firms, insurance companies in modern life. This was something they said, we need to look at our economy and redesign it so that it will give us more control, wealth, and power over the masses. How will we do that? We're going to redesign the economy so that financial institutions are going to have a bigger role in the lives of people. To prove his point, Chomsky points out that financial institutions have 40% of corporate profits today. 40% comes from, of all corporate profits, comes from financial institutions, far beyond anything we've ever seen in the past. In 1948, that percentage was 8%. 48. So however many years, 70 years later, it's now 40%. What does this mean exactly? In the United States, all the way up to the 1950s, America's economy was based on production. It was based on producing things, manufacturing, cars, widgets, and the like. We were a great manufacturing center of the world. 11% of our gross domestic production came from financial institutions back then. That means banking, investment firms, and insurances. More than 28% came from manufacturing. So there, back in the 50s, 11% finance, 28% manufacturing in the U.S. Financial institutions were a relatively small part of the economy, and their task was to take their unused assets that they had in stock, and like a bank's cash reserves, and make it available to the produ producers. 
help manufacturers, help mom and pops who had businesses, help people who just wanted to borrow for a home. Let the banks would help the economy grow in the manufacturing side. Um, back in the day, these activities were highly regulated. And it means that there were systems in place to make sure that everything those financial institutions did would be governed by rules and oversight uh, to make sure that they didn't cause a problem. This regulation forced commercial banks, that means banks that would loan to mom and pop and to other corporations, to keep all their business separate from investment banks uh, concerns and from insurance companies concerns. Uh, commercial banks had to do what commercial banking did. Insurance companies had to do what insurance companies did. Investment banks did what investment banks did. This was all during regulated uh, financial stuff. I was a stockbroker years ago, so I remember all this as I'm, I'm studying it. And what did this regulation accomplish that was with us? Well, never in the history of regulated financial institutions did we ever have a crisis that never had one. We had stock market crisis, but that was in and of itself. We didn't have one with the banks in the banking system. You with me so far? Guess what happened? Scheming men and women who wanted more of the pie. They wanted more. The bankers wanted more of what the investment houses were doing and what the insurance companies were doing. They lobbied for something called deregulation. And they wanted to take away all the boundaries that were set up for them and so that they could have their hand in what everyone else was doing. This hit in the 1970s, deregulation. And it opened the door to a single word that from the 70s has plagued us like no other in America at least. Greed. Greed has become the five-letter word of financial institutions and those who run them. Banks that one, once offered FDIC insured deposits and products to their customers could now offer grandma, who's coming in with her life savings, investment products. They could also sell grandma insurance products. She's walking into a bank and thinking, my money will be safe here, and, she's, and she meets up with a guy who's going to sell her stocks and bonds. I did that at one time. So that's exactly what we would talk about behind closed doors. How do we get these people who have these CD, uh, the CD money to start investing? Why? Because the bank makes so much more money when people are investing rather than just saving. Everything changed. Astronomical rivers of speculative capital flowed, which caused enormous changes in the financial sector. Soon, because of greed, the U.S., a former center for world manufacturing, became a center for financial manipulations of every sort. Complex financial instruments were introduced to the market and money manipulations. And by 2010, manufacturing, which was once at 28%, is now at 10% in America. And uh, the finance industry is, has replaced it and is up in the high 20s. So we saw a shift from what it was like in the 50s to now what it's like uh, uh, today. Chomsky points out that back in the day, the directors 
of manufacturing, anybody who took over a major corporation, were usually graduates in had a, had a degree in engineering. He said today, uh, the, the CEOs, they, they're not engineers. They're, they're guys who study corporate finance. They're either lawyers or they're guys who have studied corporate finance. And they run the major corporations of our world. For example, because of deregulation, do you remember GE? They used to make light bulbs. Well, GE learned that they could make a heck of a lot more money that instead of making light bulbs, they could just use all sorts of high-profiting money manipulations like index arbitrage and uh, moving money around in very complicated ways that most people cannot understand, so complicated that the masters, the puppeteers, are the only ones who really kind of get what's going on, and it leaves the masses completely, spec they're spectators and victims to what the masters are doing uh, since we made the shift. Hang with me. Chomsky calls this element of redesigning the economy back in the 1970s the financialization of the economy. All right. Hand in hand with this came offshore production. We started to say, let's send our manufacturing offshore because it can be done cheaper over there. All right. Plays a huge role in the financialization of the economy. So how does what I have just talked about apply to the brick and mortar church that we're interested in. Paul says in Ephesians 6:12, for we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. This is this is a war that's not against each other. You know, I've spent a lot of time fighting with other people. It's not that. It's, it's about these masters. It's about the spiritual darkness. That's striking at the root. In Young's literal translation of that passage, he says, Because we have not the wrestling with flesh and blood, but with the principalities, with the authorities, with the world rulers of the darkness of this age, with the spiritual things of evil in heavenly places. That's what, that is what, that's a, that's a, it's, in my opinion, those are principles that are flowing out from these principalities of darkness. The authority flowing out from world rulers in a dark age are no new thing under the sun. And uh, that what Chomsky is describing have long existed in the hearts of religious masters of humanity and thrives to this very day. I mean, hasn't organized religion long tried to de deregulate itself and their limited scope of sharing the gospel, serving the poor and sharing the gospel, and they have tried also to become all things to all people? Hasn't that, haven't we seen the exact same thing mirrored in the churches today? And, and the more you are involved in churching and playing church, the more that church wants to become everything. Just like the uh, banks wanted to become insurance salesmen and they also wanted to become investment houses. Aren't the churches doing the same thing? Haven't churches uh, that ought to be feeding the word of God to people freely? That really should be what they're doing. Feeding the word of God to people freely. 
also attempted in the spirit of deregulation to, uh, I mean, didn't Constantine and Luther and Calvin, certainly Calvin, certainly Joseph Smith, didn't all of them, even modern uh, evangelicalism say, church isn't our only concern sharing the good news. We also want to be involved in politics. We want to deregulate what we're about. We want to not just regulate ourselves to this one little area of sharing the word with people. We also want to get into politics because then we can have our hand in that too, you see. And certainly the churches have today have tried to become a one-stop shop in many areas. I mean, they have coffee shops in them. They have bookstores in them. They have travel agencies. I love listening to Christian radio. I mean, hey, this is uh, Mike from down from uh, Catholic Church. The Lord wants you to be prepared for the end. Come to Mark's Insurance Company and we'll help tell you, sell you insurance from Jesus. I mean, it's everything. They've deregulated and tried to get, use Jesus to sell everything under the sun. All in the name, same thing as corporates, greed. In the name of greed. Greed for more people in the seats. More people in the seats. And if they can come and get a one-stop shop in the church, by golly, they're going to be more committed to this church. And the more in the seats, the more money in the coffers, which means more wealth for the masters of the church, which means more power, which means more control and Less for Joe citizen, Joe believer, less. That is the same thing that is going on. I mean, even look at the preachers of the faith at the beginning. Look at the lowliness of the apostles. There was no deregulation there. The the Christians today try to make it seem like, oh, we're doing the right thing by getting involved in all this stuff. The Lord and his apostles, they weren't involved in any of this stuff. They weren't marketing Jesus t-shirts. They didn't have coffee shops. They didn't get involved in politics. They weren't holding concerts. It's all bullshit. Sorry. That's just what it is. Espresso. And that cuts to the chase, but better. Sorry. And most have sought to redesign the original Christian economies of simplicity and teaching the word and being regulated by the Holy Spirit to deregulation, which allows Jesus to be marketed like Lady Gaga. And before we open the, uh, go to the phone lines, there's one more thing Chomsky points out before uh, we go to his fourth principle next week. And listen, he's secular. He's probably an atheist. I hold no respect for him in terms of, uh, I don't hold him up as anything. He's not a hero of mine or anything, but he has good insight on some things. Going back to his younger days as an MIT professor, he came out against the Vietnam War. And he also came up with some strong opinions about the stuff we're talking about. And he was labeled America's biggest anti-American at that time. And it was a title slapped on his forehead by those who did not appreciate his views, who were the, really the puppeteers. And it is of great intrigue and interest to me that the man is someone who plainly points out the sinister nature of sending our manufacturing overseas. And he points that out, and he's called an anti-American. And he points these other things out, and he's called anti-American. I mean, he resisted the Vietnam War, and he was labeled an anti-American at the time. And today, in retrospect, we learn what that war was all about, don't we? My own father-in-law was a full bird colonel in the uh, U.S. Army. You will be hard-pressed to find somebody who is more patriotic than my in-laws. 
this guy bled red, white, and blue. But he told me, if I knew today, he's now deceased, what we, uh, if I knew then what we know today about the Vietnam War, I never would have gone. And I think he went twice. So Chomsky wasn't wrong, but they labeled him an anti-American because it went against the system. Chomsky says, actually, this notion of anti-American is quite an interesting one. It's, uh, listen to this, it's a totalitarian notion. It isn't used in free societies. He goes on and says, in totalitarian states, the notion to call people anti-something is used. So in the old Soviet Union, dissidents were called anti-Soviets. That was the worst condemnation a person could receive. And I would add, Stalin made sure of that, didn't he? So you see, when the few want to have their way the total way, the totalitarian way, then anti, terms like anti-American or anti-Soviet are used to challenge those who challenge, is used against those who challenge their totalitarian ways. We have certainly seen this uh, term come out from Mormonism. We, we see it come out from Judaism. We all have heard of you're an anti-Mormon. We've heard that you are an anti-Semite. And uh, they are used, sometimes justly, but sometimes unjustly, just as a means to protect the totalitarian desires of the group behind it. So in free societies, places where totalitarianism is absent, critics are allowed to be critics without the labeling. And the more totalistic a group is, the more labeling of anti comes about. So in a true totalitarian regime, a label can mean imprisonment. It can mean an execution. To be called something like that can mean your death, which is a wonderful way to maintain control over groups. So in the U.S., we'll wrap it up. Terms like anti-American or Marxist are used against anybody who challenges the status quo. And, but in the U.S., there is so much freedom. There's still an ability to wiggle around, even if you're labeled with those things. But let me wrap this up with the final parallel to the faith. In the faith, which is not totalitarian, and it's not an institution that should demand totalitarian ideology, uh, terms that vilify and malign people uh, and label individuals maliciously might need to be reconsidered instead of used. I say this from being guilty of using those terms myself uh, and from being vilified as a heretic. That's a big one. That's, that's, instead of saying anti-Christian, we don't say that. In the Christian faith, we call people heretics because it's the same thing as slapping the label uh, on someone who goes against U.S. policy as an anti-American. It does the same thing. And so I've learned, I've repented, tried to repent, and I choose to stand with anyone anywhere who says Jesus is Lord. They say that, I'm no longer gonna vet them and, and, and question them about which Jesus. I'm gonna leave that up to them, the spirit, and God who's guiding them. Vilification comes hand in hand with demanded, objectified faith. Open, fruit of the spirit ability comes with a subjective approach to this faith. And perhaps it's time for the many in the faith to begin to redesign what the few have done to the faith and bring it back to what it originally started as, which is something about sharing the love of Jesus, sharing the word, 
getting away from all the trappings of religion. And with that, let's see the phone, 801-590-8413. We have an off-air question. We're going to take a look at the spot. We'll come back and take it. If there's no calls, we'll see you next week. The spirit is the gunfight. The spirit is what we want to rely on in reaching people. And we don't want to use the word of God, though it is sharper than any two-edged sword, to stab and kill one another with. In my humble opinion, Knife to a Gunfight is one of the most important books that uh, we've produced in, uh, ever, and we hope you'll give it a chance. It's about misinterpreting the purpose and place of the Bible. It addresses the great things about the Word of God, uh, the book I spend my life in, love it. But this book goes into how we've taken this, the Word of God and we've used it as a knife and we've stabbed each other with it, and we've parted each other with it, instead of uniting with the content and letting it build us up in love and in the spirit. So consider getting it, hotm.tv, knife to a gunfight. And that book is off always, all the books we have are free to you if you can't uh, afford them or even if you don't want to pay for them, just write us and tell us, we'll send them to you. Listen, off-air question, what's the difference between Mormons, Christians, and Catholics? How can we all get along? You know, really the difference between uh, them, it comes down to doctrine and practice. It really just comes down to that. And, uh, but in the end, let me ask this. Do Mormons believe Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world? They do. Is there a bunch of other stuff that goes along with that? There is, certainly. But do they say, do they claim to believe that Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world? They add the garden and a few other things, but they believe a man named Jesus, son of God, died on a cross for the sins of the world, and they believe he was resurrected from the grave. Do Catholics believe that Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead? Catholics believe that. Do Christians believe Jesus died on a cross and was raised from the dead? Well, essentially, do Catholics, Mormons, and Christians believe Jesus was sinless? They do. Do all of them believe that Jesus was born of a virgin? I'm not sure about the Mormons because of some older things, but I'm not sure about now, but I don't think they do if you look at their dark, deepest uh, doctrine. But I'm not even sure that's one of the gospel uh, principles. If you look at 1 Corinthians, it tells us what the gospel is. That Jesus was born, he lived a sinless life, he walked the earth, he died, he was raised on the third day, he ascended to the Father. Every one of those uh, uh, organizations believe those things. Now, we get involved and we start arguing with each other over all the other stuff. I get it, some of that stuff's important. And when you come to know the truth, those things, you know, you, you'll put them away. You don't want them in your life. But bottom line, all, the, all three of those agree that he was here, he lived a sinless life, he died on a cross, he resurrected, he's the son of God, and, and so that's the good news. Now, I know there's interpretational differences and things, but though, that's what we have in common. 
I would suggest that we try to look at individuals and say, whatever, you believe in Jesus, whatever. And if we're going to talk about the individual faiths, that's a different subject. We can start to break that down in, in focus groups and TV shows and things like that. But individually, I think if someone claims Jesus is Lord of my life, uh, you share what you believe, share what you know, but you don't part ways with them because they uh, don't agree with you on all that different stuff. I know it's really liberal, but I'm going to let God figure that out between me and the Mormon and me and the Catholic and me and the Pentecostal or me and the fundamentalist, whatever. All right, we have 15 minutes left and we have no calls. So keeping to the Espresso Creed, we're signing off and we'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter. I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy on the wind And I won't be coming out I'm going in This man's awake A storm's arising the dawn's awaiting till a hundred monkeys know And I can feel the light-filled monkey star